almost every magazine and many newspapers nowadays have on their staff an agony aunt or occasionally an unctuous uncle. Someone who gives advice in response to readers who write in with their problems. And reading the problems tells you actually a lot about the issues that are facing people today. And reading the answers tells you a lot about the philosophy of the people who give them. So last week I went to the newsagents and picked up a copy of what I was told was one of the more moderate magazines called Bella. It's not my normal reading. And I turned to the problems page, entitled, No Problem. And Bella's counsellor, Anna Lovell, who was, I was informed, always ready to listen, advise and comfort. And I was immediately drawn to a question entitled, He says marriage would spoil it. Now if you can't read that, I'm going to read it to you. It's written by a lady. I'm a widow and I've known a lovely man who is also widowed for six years. We don't live together but we see each other a few times a week. He sometimes likes to have sex, which I think should be for when you're married, but we love each other, so it happens. I'd like to marry him, but he thinks we're fine as we are. He says he likes his own way, and it would spoil things if we were married. Do you think this relationship is worth holding on to? I do miss him on the days when we don't see each other. Here is Anne's answer. I'm sorry you feel this relationship isn't right because he doesn't want to marry you. I think you'd be more unhappy if you ended it. Think how much you miss him when you're apart. I wonder if it's your religious beliefs that make it difficult. If so, why not ask your priest or vicar about such a relationship at your time of life? I'd be surprised if he told you it was wrong. I didn't write this, I just found it, right? (laughs) I do hope you find a way to accept the relationship as it is and enjoy it for as long as you can. Now, let's suppose I was the priest or vicar. And this lady came to me. And people do come to me with all sorts of interesting questions and serious problems in their lives. What advice would I give? Well, rather than giving my advice, I would turn to the Bible for God's advice. And you may be surprised. If you're sitting there thinking, goodness me, what on earth is this about? You may be surprised that the Bible actually deals in explicit detail with such a scenario. More importantly, it lays down principles which can be applied to other and any situations regarding sex and marriage and for that matter, anything else. And Bella's counsellor would certainly be surprised at the advice it gives. And so, in the next in our series, Keeping First Things First, we focus on what I've called marriage matters. And let's read what the Bible actually says about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to read the first half and the last couple of verses. You'll need a Bible, it would help to have a Bible anyway. If you've not got one with you, don't worry. There are Bibles in the pews and I'll give you the page numbers where we turn to things. Page, it's right near the end of the Bible, page 1148. And you'll see it's entitled Marriage. That's not in the original text, that's just the translators to break up the text a bit. 
Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and her husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised? When he was called, he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he was a slave when he was called by the Lord as the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he was a free man when he was called as Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men, brothers... Each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God has called him to. And then towards the end, it should be 1 to 24, not 25, sorry. The last two verses on the same topic. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is God's word. Now, before we turn to it, this is a very sensitive subject because all of us have different marital status, if that's the plural status. And let's pray that God will help us to understand his word and to listen to what he says to us rather than what we want him to say to us, which so often we do when we come to the Bible. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, you know each one of us here and you know our history you know, our circumstances at present, the things that happened in the past that maybe even now are painful to think about. You also know the things that lie ahead of us that we don't know yet about the people we'll meet, people we'll marry. Lord, help us to be guided now by your word and to put it into practice. And whatever it says, to seek to understand and to obey it and to trust you, believing that's the best thing you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Well, as you can see, there's nothing new under the sun. In verse 1, we understand that Paul, a Christian preacher and teacher, who founded the church at Corinth when he went to preach there a few years previously, has got a letter, readers' letters from Corinth. And they've written to ask him about certain things. So he says, now for the matters you wrote about. And there are quite a few other matters that he deals with later in this letter that God willing will come to. About food offered to idols, about spiritual gifts, about an offering for relief fund and so on. Here in chapter 7, he deals with the issues the Christians in Corinth have raised concerning sex and marriage. Now before we look at what he actually says, we should look at Paul's credentials. What does he know about what he's talking about? Uh, this morning we parked the car in George Street and it was near the bus stop and I wasn't sure whether we were actually in the space where you weren't supposed to park. And a traffic warden was walking past. So I said, excuse me, am I okay to park here? Yes sir, it's fine. Okay, I took his word for it as an expert. So what does Paul know about sex and marriage? First of all, the authority Paul possesses. In this passage, if you were listening carefully, and in some other places in his letters, Paul seems to distinguish between what he says is his own personal opinion and what the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, has said. So look at verse 10, what the Lord Jesus said. To the married I give this command, brackets, not I, but the Lord. Verse 12 he says, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. Does this mean that what he says to the married is binding? as it comes from the Lord, whereas what he says to other people, because it's only his opinion, is not binding. It may read like that, but that's not what it means. Paul claims in all his letters that he's an apostle, a messenger, sent by God with a message of authority to declare divine truth. But dealing with these specific issues raised here about divorce and remarriage and marriage, he distinguishes between the ones on which the Lord Jesus specifically spoke in his ministry, probably known orally to Paul, not written down yet, and situations which Jesus did not address, like a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. And in these cases, Paul gives his own judgment, but he claims to have the Spirit of God who inspires what he says, whether it be pastoral advice on that level or whether it be an apostolic command. And as such, what he writes, therefore, has divine Spirit-inspired authority, which is why we regard his letters as part of the Bible, as part of God's Word, on a par with other scripture. Interestingly, one of the last books to be written in the New Testament by the Apostle Peter, his second letter, Notice what he says right at the end of this letter in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's on the screen. You can look it up if you like. He says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which is reassuring to all of us, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. And significantly also, Paul is very careful to distinguish between what the Lord said and what he is saying. There are some people who say, well, the early church just made up all these sayings of Jesus to justify their position. Not so. Paul is very careful here, very careful to distinguish where he has clear evidence of what Jesus said and what he is saying. But even given this authority, what experience does Paul have in regard to the issues he addresses? 
he clearly states in verse 8 that he is unmarried. So is this an example of the unmarried marriage counsellor syndrome? In short, does he know what he's talking about? Or is he a some plain a misogynist or a male chauvinist? While it is clear that Paul is unmarried, it is by no means certain that he had never been married. What he writes about sex and marriage may come from his own personal experience. Why do I say that? Well, it was very unusual for a male Jew not to be married, and Paul, before his conversion, was a rabbi, a teacher. It was almost unheard of for a rabbi or teacher not to be married. And if he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which seems clear on one occasion at least, he refers to this, then he would definitely have been married, because to qualify, you had to be married. So maybe his wife had died. Or maybe she had left and divorced him when he'd become a Christian, an issue which he addresses with great feeling and understanding here in this passage. And what he says about sex and marriage reveals far more insight, and we will see a very radical view of the role and rights of men and women in the first century, which was completely countercultural to his day and the views of Jews and Greeks and Romans, for that matter, his radical teaching. So, let's turn now to the issue about which the Christians in Corinth had written to Paul, the issue that Paul addresses. Now, if you were in this series before, and you can get the tapes or listen on the internet, because they can download them now, in chapter 6, the bit before, is all about sexual immorality, verses 12 through to 20. And in it, we saw that the Christians in Corinth were bandying around certain slogans to justify their behaviour, kind of things that people hold, you know, on a board. And the slogan that justified their behaviour in this previous section was, everything is permissible to me. And they used this as an excuse for sexual licence. They said, now I'm a Christian, I'm free to do what I please. And so I can do what I like with my body. It doesn't really matter. It's not to do with spiritual things anyway. But now we see as we come to chapter 7 that there are people who take an extreme opposite position to the one in chapter 6. And it's almost certain that the opening verse is a slogan. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Uh, The footnote is more accurate if you have an NIV. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Literally, it says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And instead of seeing this as an excuse for sexual license, people were saying, this is a reason for sexual abstinence. Rather than pursuing hedonism, where you seek pleasure and satisfy the desires of the flesh, some people devoted themselves to what was called asceticism, where you subdued your body and bodily appetites and abstained from fulfilling them. And in this way, you can see what they were thinking. They were saying, well, things like sex are nothing to do with spiritual life. In fact, if you were really spiritual, you wouldn't be interested in that kind of thing. And surely they think, Paul will support our position. After all, he's just written, flee from sexual immorality, verse 18, stressing how damaging it was to one's spiritual health, highlighting the fact that the Christian's body was a temple of the Holy Spirit, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6. Was he not himself committed to a celibate lifestyle? Surely he would be happy to carry one of their placards, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So, if we want to understand this passage, there is one and only one issue that Paul is addressing here. He is not giving a full treatise, theological treatise, on marriage and divorce, let alone remarriage, 
although churches and Christians have tried to make him say so. For that you need to look at other parts of the Bible as well and use Paul as no more than supporting evidence. No, what he's addressing here is this issue of whether it is a good thing for Christians to abstain from sex. Not just men uh, touching women, but women touching men. And the word good here doesn't mean good in the sense of morally wrong. It means good in the sense of a good thing. Is it advisable? Is it helpful? There's probably a clear contrast here with what the Jews believed. The Jews were very strong on marriage. Why? Because when God created Adam, you read this in the book of Genesis, he created him, and after everything God created, he said it was good. But when he created Adam, he said, there's something not good here. It is not good for a man to be alone. And so he created the woman, the two to complement each other. So what is good for a Christian? Is it marriage, as the Jews believed? Or is it celibacy, which Paul now seemed to practice? And in his response, in verses 2 through 16, if you look at the text in front of you, Paul steers a middle course between these two extremes. And his answer to the question, is it good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman and vice versa? His answer is, it all depends on your present circumstances. And he imagines, as it were, in the church in Corinth, this is addressed specifically to Christians here. He imagines in the congregation four different groups of Christians in the audience who each, as it were, are asking their own particular question. You can imagine if he was speaking from this pulpit, a person would say, well, hang on a minute. What should I do? I'm married to a non-Christian. Another person says, excuse me, my husband's died. What do you think I should do? And so he answers these four situations. Let's look at each one in turn and you'll see what he means. First of all, in verses 2 to 7, he talks at some length, and this is the longest one in case you think this is going to go on forever. We'll spend more time on this. He talks to Christians who are married. Now, there has been a long hangover which goes back right back to Augustine. Still evident in some Christian circles which sees sexuality as part of the fall. And so sex is viewed at worst as something dirty, nasty, and at best as a hindrance to the spiritual life. I'm being fairly explicit here because the Bible is explicit and most of the younger generation know what I'm talking about. It doesn't seem very explicit to them, but my apologies to those who are older, but it's important that we grasp these issues. But Paul, with the authority of the record in Genesis, sees sexual intimacy as part of God's good creation before the fall. It was not good for the man to be alone, so he created the two to complement each other. The two parts become one. A spiritual union expressed in the physical union of marriage. So God has given this gift of sexual intimacy within marriage. But, he says, it must only be expressed within the commitment of marriage, a marriage that is both monogamous, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, verse 2, and lifelong, verse 39, as long as they both shall live. One commentator, David Pryor, writes, Marriage, says Paul, is the gift and plan of God. Sex is the gift and plan of God. To reject both as if they were evil is as much a deviation from the will of God as to indulge in sexual intercourse outside marriage. And in this relationship, he says, a husband and wife have mutual obligations to each other. 
They are not rights which each partner demands from the other. They are gifts which each partner gives to the other. And mutual giving and equality is quite explicit. Verse 4, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to the husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but to his wife. Now, when he writes this, the first part of that, all the people, especially the men, would have said, yes. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to the husband. But they would have gasped in astonishment about the second thing he says. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Uh, Gordon Fee, probably the best commentator on 1 Corinthians, if you want a good commentary, take you a long time to read it, but it's well worth reading. This is what he says. Too many still see sex as though it were the privilege of the husband and the duty of the wife, but not so. It is the privilege and duty of both together. Each belongs mutually to the other. In sexual intercourse, as nowhere else, husbands and wives express their unity and mutuality. Notice in passing, there is no mention here of procreation, having children, as a reason for sexual union, let alone as the primary reason. So, what is Paul saying? He's saying, if you're married, Christians, rather than abstaining from sexual relationships as though this was something spiritual, a husband and wife should engage in them as an act of giving to each other, rather than taking from each other. Now, this is pretty practical, isn't it? Paul Barnett, writing as an Anglican bishop, adds a helpful pastoral writer. He says, nonetheless, each partner needs to be sensitive to those seasons of life when having one's own needs met is not easy for the other. Where partners find difficulty in their sexual expression, it should be a matter of loving discussion and tender understanding between them, perhaps with medical help sought. So, for the married couple, sexual relations are the norm. But Paul makes one exception. He says there is one exception, verse 5, to devote yourselves to prayer. Look what he says in verse 5. Do not deprive each other, sexual intimacy of course except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control he says there are special occasions the word time there is a word that means a special occasion when a Christian couple devote themselves to prayer and just as fasting abstaining from food maybe help to focus on seeking and communing with God so abstinence from sexual activity may likewise be beneficial. But, notice there are two provisos to this exception. He says, it must be by mutual consent, the Greek word is symphonia, from which we get symphony, and for a limited duration. Because if abstinence from sex becomes the norm, not the special occasion, notice what he says, it will make you vulnerable to the temptation of Satan, the tempter, through lack of self-control. You will be vulnerable to Satan's temptation. One writer says it is clear that Satan deliberately concentrates much of his subtlety in sexual temptation. So the first group Paul addresses regarding sexual relations is the Christian married couple. They have a duty each partner owes to the other and should only be abstained from in limited exceptional circumstances. Now, the second group he addresses. Christians who are widowed. If you look at verses 8 and 9. The word translated and married there is almost certainly widowers rather than just unmarried because in first century uh, Greek most, there wasn't a common word that was used for 
widower. And so he's probably saying here, almost certainly, to the widowers and the widows, I say this, and gives this advice. And his advice here is, in these circumstances, you're better staying unmarried. It is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. However, as he's already conceded, God has not given everyone the gift of self-control. And so again, after giving advice, he makes an exception. Unless you lack self-control. Look at verse 9. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The words with passion are not in the text originally. It says, better to marry than to burn. The translators have added with passion, which is probably the meaning, although some people think it refers to burning in Gehenna, in the fires of Gehenna, as a result of a lifestyle which excludes you from the kingdom of God. Already in verse 2 we've read that marriage is one God-given means of avoiding the rampant sexual immorality in a place like Corinth 2,000 years ago and like Edinburgh today. The 1662 Anglican prayer book gives marriage as one of three reasons God ordained mar- uh, one of three reasons God ordained marriage a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication however it is not the only reason for getting married but again we see the practical advice of the bible and the word of god it shows a realistic view of human nature which paul had and which god has contrary to the idealistic view which i've noticed many christians seem to have and which sometimes in self-delusion, leads to a fall, because pride precedes a fall. Next, Paul moves on to a third group. By the way, if you're not married, just still concentrate on this, because this may affect whether you decide to get married. And in two weeks' time, our assistant pastor, from his experience, will be speaking about singleness. Thirdly, Christians who want to divorce their Christian spouse, verses 10 to 11. There appears to have been, in Corinth, married Christians... Some commentators think it was more the women than the men, but we're not sure, who regarded sex as unspiritual and believed the only remedy for them was to divorce or separate from their husbands or wives. There was no legal distinction much in the ancient world between separation and divorce. Paul unambiguously states they should not separate and says that his authority for this is not just his own word, but the word of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't do it, he says. Remember what Jesus said. can't be absolutely sure how Paul knew what Jesus said. Probably the Gospels hadn't been written yet, but certainly the sayings of Jesus would have been recorded and learnt. The reference is probably to Jesus' saying on divorce in Mark 10, in which he took an absolute position on divorce, contrary to the easy divorce that was practiced by the Jews in the first century. Mark 10, verse 11 and 12, Jesus answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband, marries another man, she commits adultery. If you know the Bible well, you'll know that in Matthew's account, on a similar occasion, our Lord gave an exception. He said, divorce is not permitted except for, and the word he uses is the word pornea, which we get pornography, but it meant sexual immorality. It's the same word Paul uses in chapter 6, flee sexual immorality. People have asked, why didn't Paul include this here in 1 Corinthians? Well, this wasn't his subject. may not even have been aware of it. However, Paul also says here, there is an exception. A recognition that for whatever reason, a Christian couple may separate. And in this case, he says, a wife must remain unmarried, 
or be reconciled to her husband and vice versa. If you're a Christian, married to another Christian, and you divorce, you should not remarry. Now many would say this is too strong and hard to enforce pastorally. And while it needs to be considered with what the rest of Scripture says, nonetheless it should, should serve as a salutary warning to Christians contemplating marriage and to those contemplating divorce. Let me put it in this way. If in the most beautiful passage in the Bible on marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says a Christian marriage is a picture of the union between Christ and his church. What picture does it portray to the watching world when those whom God has joined together are torn apart or tear themselves apart? And in an age of increasingly quicker divorces, such a thing should be the slowest and last option in a Christian marriage. So, he's gone through these three groups, that's only one left. The rest. That is Christians married to unbelievers. And once again, he states his position and allows an exception. You can imagine the situation in first century Corinth. Paul comes along, he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, and various people respond to the message. Maybe there's a man there and he responds, but his wife does not respond. She doesn't want to become a Christian. Or a woman, a wife, responds to the gospel and her husband doesn't want to become a Christian. Now says Paul, what should you do in those circumstances? He says, stay married. Again, there seems to have been a belief there that if you were married to someone who was not a Christian, that in some way this would defile you. What Paul actually says is exactly the opposite. He says, for the sake of the unbelieving spouse, it's for his or her benefit that you stay married. The word he uses is sanctified. And the children of such a marriage, he says, are holy. Now, to be absolutely honest, no one knows what this means. It does not mean, clearly, because he talks later about they may become Christians, that they become Christians. What it clearly means is that there is great benefit if you happen to be a non-Christian married to a Christian, you are in a beneficial relationship. William Barclay writes, in a partnership with a believer and an unbeliever, it is not so much that the believer is brought into contact with the realm of sin, as that the unbeliever is brought into contact with the realm of grace. And because this is the case, Paul says, if you're married to a non-Christian, stay married. Don't take the initiative in seeking separation and divorce. However, again, he makes an exception. If the unbelieving partner insists on leaving, then he or she should be allowed to do so. I've actually spent, Nita and I over the years, have spent time talking to people in these circumstances. And I think if you're a Christian and a member of the church, you need to be sensitive when one person becomes a Christian, sensitive to the partner. Think of a Christian man in this situation, um, a non-Christian man whose wife became a Christian. And he said he found it totally, dis it, everything changed. He said it was like there was another man in the house. And his wife had a different set of priorities. And when she was making decisions, she was consulting someone else. It's a very difficult situation which need to be treated with sensitivity. If, however, the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, Paul says, let him do so, all else having failed, because Christians should pursue the path of peace. God has called us to live in peace. And in this case, if the unbelieving partner walks away, a believing man or woman, he says, he's not bound in these circumstances. Now, what does not bound mean here? Not bound to the marriage, or not bound in the sense of being free to remarry? And I have to tell you that Christians and churches disagree on this point. My own opinion, 
for what it's worth, is that it more likely means free to remarry, especially if the unbelieving spouse is united with someone else. The fact that Paul does not, as with the case of partners who divorce Christians, state that remarriage is not allowed inclines me to this view. However, once again, it is not the preferred option. It is the exception. Depending on what view you take, the questions in verse 16 are either positive or negative. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Is he saying that staying in the relationship may help to save? Or staying with it is no guarantee of a positive outcome? So, these are the four groups that Paul addresses. And we've moved through them rather quickly, and I hope you're still with me. But is there any unifying thread to what he says? Yes, there is. For notice finally, and we're getting towards the end almost, the principle that Paul applies in verses 17 to 24. Some people can't see where these verses fit into the passage. Why does he suddenly start talking about slavery and circumcision when he's really talking about marriage? However, once you see the principle is applying, everything falls into place. It's stated three times. Look at the Bible in front of you. Verse 17, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Verse 20, Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Verse 24, Brothers, each man as responsible for God should remain in the situation God has called him to. Put colloquially by one writer, Paul is saying, don't be in a hurry to change the external circumstances of your life simply because you become a Christian. So often that happens. People become Christians and they want to change all their relationships. The primary change, when you become a Christian, the most important one that affects everything else is that your relationship with God is changed. Not with other people or your situation or circumstances. So, Paul says, if a man was a Jew before he became a Christian, he shouldn't seek to try and reverse surgically reverse his circumcision. If a man was a Gentile before he became a Christian, he should not, as many Jewish people were saying, submit to circumcision. Instead, he says, it doesn't really matter, it's irrelevant. What really matters is obeying God. And again, he says, if you're a Christian, you have to be a slave. If freedom's possible, he says, take it. But your status with God is what matters. You're a Christ slave, and you're free in Christ. Both slave and free Christians should not let themselves be enslaved to any man-made rules or ideas. They belong together to Christ, purchased by his blood. And it's this same principle that he's applying here to circumcision, to slavery, and to marriage. In regard to marriage, God's call is what matters. Now, while sexual abstinence as a means to spirituality may not be a live issue for Christians today, the opposite is far more likely. Nonetheless, the principle that Paul applies here is applicable to every generation. And here's where we finish. My life and your life, if you are a Christian, is not determined by your personal situation or your status. Your fulfillment and satisfaction in life is not determined whether you're in a sexual relationship or not. When you become a Christian, other things take priority. Supremely, that God has called you. Verse 25 ends with the words, before God. Verse 24, rather, ends with the words, before God. Finish with a quote from Gordon Fee. 
Precisely because our lives are determined by God's call, not by our situation, we need to learn to continue there as those who are before God. Paul's concern is not with change one way or the other, but with living out one's calling in whatever situation one is found. There let one serve the Lord and let the call of God sanctify to oneself the situation, whether it be mixed marriage, singleness, blue or white collar work, or socio-economic condition. We should be content to serve God wherever we are until he calls us into something else. And only the Christian can do this. Because only the Christian has that right relationship with God which puts everything else into perspective. The call of the Christian in much simpler terms is this. Bloom where you were planted. Let's pray together.